everybody. I'm super fired up for this guest. It is with great privilege to have with us on a longtime college coach who spent over 20 years coaching at LSU from a period of 1991 through 2012. He's hosted two television shows focusing on college sports that have aired on both Tennis Channel and on Fox Sports. And he's recently been traveling a bit teaching young tennis players and presenting on the importance of mental toughness. I caught up with him at one of these presentations and had the privilege of talking with him a bit. This coach was kind enough to spend some time with us tonight on the Courtside with Bielitz and Tennis podcast. Please welcome to the pod, Coach Tony Minnis. Coach, thank you uh, for taking some time tonight and sharing your tennis journey with us. David, thanks for having me, man. Uh, it was a pleasure meeting you the other day in Chicago. Yeah, a little, a little cold when you were there, and I think it's even colder when we're recording now, so it was good that you got out of town when you did, I think. I think I brought the cold back here, to be honest with you, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but it's, it'll get back to hot in, in no time. So you're, um, you're back in Louisiana, you live in Baton Rouge? Yeah, I grew up here, I was born here, and uh, I was lucky enough to play at University of Louisiana Lafayette and then coach at LSU for extended period of time. So, yeah, I'm born and bred Louisiana. Okay, so let's kind of get into it a little bit. Um, you, you come from a tennis family. Your father was a tennis coach. Your sister played at LSU. Your brother followed you. And you guys played at Southwestern Louisiana, correct? Correct. So tell us kind of how your father got into the game, and then I'm guessing it was just natural that he got you and, and, and all your siblings involved in the game as well. Yeah, my father had a love and passion for tennis, and actually, uh, you know, grew up playing tennis. He actually was born in the Bahamas and grew up here in the U.S., and, uh, and really, you know, played tennis all his life. And so the funny thing with me, when I was young, I was so small. Uh, I was like, when I was 15 years old, I was four foot 11. And so it wasn't, I enjoyed playing other sports, but I wasn't very good at them because, uh, because I was just, I was real thin and real small. I think one of the things, so as a junior tennis player, you know, I was good. I was pretty good. I was like, I was ranked one in the state at the time or two in the state going through different different patches but I wasn't to the level I got to and looking back and I, I actually I tell the kids that I'm talking to all the time one of the best things that happened to me was I sprouted um, at age 16, 17 and grew to almost 6 feet and I uh, ended up being a pretty decent athlete and so uh, I think the way when I was younger you know I had to be successful was using my mind and stuff and so when my athleticism you know, caught up, it was a, not an easy transition, but it was a transition that made it better for me. You know, I, I did a lot better once I got to college. For sure, and I'm sure during that growth spurt, uh, a little of the coordination got lost until, like you said, your body caught up to uh, your height and your athletic ability caught up to your height. A lot of my coordination. I was like, I was finding my buddy, she made, I had these big feet, <laughs> and I, I was actually, you know, not, but you know, it's funny, there's something that we did uh, the plyometric drills that a coach at the time, a guy named Brad Roll, who uh, coached the, yeah, I'm going to call it University of Louisiana Lafayette, that's what it's called to this day. Uh, he, man, he, and it was, he just learned all these different things with plyometrics and stuff. And so I got to where I had pretty good hops, and, uh, and that really helped my coordination and my quickness and my speed. And so once I did that, I got a lot better. 
and uh, and it helped. It was very beneficial in college. Understood. So, um, kind of before we get to college, obviously you had a good junior career where you were recruited. You played in college from 1984 through 1988. Talk a little bit about your junior highlights. I'm assuming the results got to be a lot better uh, once you had that growth spurt and once your body got used to that. Uh, your new your newfound height. <laughs> Yeah, that was interesting because I wasn't really that heavily recruited. Um, Gary Albertine was my coach in college, and, and I can't express enough the job he did uh, from a recruiting standpoint. And I, I think he saw some potential in me. So I, I was really not that heavily recruited, but at the time, it's hard to really think about it now. Uh, you know, ULL, we were top 25 my whole career and coming in from a recruiting standpoint uh, I came on a top 25 program so you know uh, I was recruited by UNO and Nickel State some local schools but what ended up happening was um, I got offered a tuition and book scholarship to ULL the best thing that ever happened to me is when I got there there were five seniors and I was redshirted, and I was able to put on about 10 pounds of muscle, improve quickness, and a little bit of confidence. And so the next year, uh, we had a whole slew of a new team, and uh, did, we ended up 25 in the country and ended up beating uh, new teams such as Tennessee, Alabama, Auburn, uh, you know, Florida State, some really good schools at that time, University of Kentucky. And, uh, and it really, you know, gave me a lot of confidence to kind of, and, and the, I think the other part that was really neat, Gary did an amazing job. At University of Louisiana Lafayette, he recruited the number one player in the South three consecutive years. Uh, Jay Bailey won Southerns uh, from Atlanta, Ashley Roney from Hickory, North Carolina, uh, and then Brett Garnett from Columbia, South Carolina, each won seven three consecutive years and all came to University of Louisiana Lafayette. So we had a good team, and it gave me a lot of confidence practicing with those guys every day and realizing that I could compete with them. I mean, he obviously, like you said, your team was good. You did well. You competed in the 1988 NCA team championships, had a 37-6 and sec- six, uh what was that three set record in his first in your first three seasons? Um, I mean, yeah, and you said you beat a number of the big dog schools. You already said that you ranked fifteenth in the final po- final polls one year. Um, that was the smartest thing you did as far as redshirting, especially you got five seniors. Take a look at what college tennis is all about. Get stronger. Go through the program. See what it's all about. Then those five seniors graduate, and you're ready to rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, again, and the other thing, I changed my forehand. I had a extreme continental grip, and I switched it to semi-western, and so all of a sudden, that side, not that my forehand, everybody laughs at my forehand, but it really <laughs> got better, okay, and the funny thing about this three-set thing, at the time, uh, I mean, I was, I was, you know, I was always coming to the net, serve, volley, chip, charge, coming forward, and, you know, and I, I like the no-ad, because that was a period where you played no edge scoring and then it changed for the longest time you played uh, you know deuce ad and just recently gone back but for pressure situations it was great for me because I was constantly putting pressure on my opponent right. and I felt as though it was an advantage so it was you know it was really neat it was it was a blast and you know like you, you know we finished 15 
my uh, senior year, but we finished 20 and 18 my sophomore and junior years, and we ranked between 11 and 25 a whole career. So the whole time we were there, and you know, we were competing against the top teams in the country. So it was it was an unbelievable experience. Uh, you know, I improved a lot and ended up having a really really good career. And you know, starting singles and doubles, I played low in the lineup, but at the same time. I felt like I was pretty consistent, you know, with you know, coming through and, and you know, winning matches and, and helping the team and stuff. And so uh, I was a small piece of something that was very special. And what's ironic is uh, two of my teammates just got inducted into the Hall of Fame at ULL this past weekend. I was there, and they were ranked number one in the country uh, in my senior year. And actually, Brett Garnett ended up playing Wimbledon, the French Open, uh, Australian Open, and played the Pro Circuit for a while. So it was, you know, it was really a special time, and it, it was a very unique situation because, you know, we were a smaller school competing against the top schools in the country, but at the same time, more than holding our own. Oh, for sure. Um, and I want to kind of go into the next phase in your career because we mentioned. You come from a tennis family. Your father was a tennis coach. Was was your transition into coaching something you know natural? Something that you thought you wanted to do after you're playing? Uh, you had a tremendous career at LSU, and we're going to get to that in a second. But LSU was not your first stop when you got into uh, the coaching profession, correct? No, you know what was interesting. I actually had an undergrad undergrad uh, degree in finance. And uh, I started working on a master's in business. Actually, I finished my master's, but I, at the time I started working on it. And in order, during the time I was working on my master's, I started teaching at a couple of clubs locally. And I just really enjoyed teaching and really enjoyed working with kids. And uh, and so I just kind of, you know, and I had a couple other schools that kind of mentioned potential positions, but what the ironic thing was um, Jeff McDonald, who's now the coach of Vanderbilt, has done an unbelievable job. He was a, a coach at LSU, and he called me, and he said, hey, I'm in a bind. Uh, you know, could you, my assistant coach quit on me, could you come and help out? And I came for a handful of matches and helped him, and uh, the team actually did very well. And uh, then he ended up going to Duke, and uh, the job opened, and he recommended me and a few others too. So uh, it was, you know, a lot. I think one of the things that the whole ULL thing and the LSU thing and the tennis thing, I've been extremely blessed and fortunate. But, you know, I was at the right place at the right time, and I uh, was very lucky to get the job. For sure. And, I mean, your success was so obvious. And I'm just going to sing your praises a little bit. And this is the Cliff Notes version because we don't have enough time to, to name all the accomplishments you, you had when you were coaching at LSU. You're the, LS, you're the all-time winningest women's tennis coach there. You were the 2009, 2007, 2004, 1999, 1995 ITA Southwest Regional Coach of the Year. You were 1999-97-95 Louisiana Coach of the Year, 1997 SEC Coach of the Year. And again, this is just the Cliff Notes version. You also coached a mutual contact of ours, the current associate head coach at the University of Kansas, Megan Falcon, who had a tremendous collegiate career at LSU. Megan made the semis and singles of the NCAAs in 2007, was also the SEC Player of the Year in 2007. Shout out, Megan Falcon. Um, talk a little bit about uh, your, your tenure there at that time. Yeah, you know, it's 
funny because I think one thing uh, from a coaching standpoint, uh, recruiting is key. And one of the things that I wanted to do was, uh, and I feel very good about, uh, we actually, I tried to really have some, I had in-state kids that were playing and starting and contributing to our team. And I was really fortunate to have a pipeline with with some international kids. And so uh, my fourth year, uh, there was a young lady named Susana Rodriguez who was from Brazil. And I I ended up signing her, and she really kind of turned the program around. Uh, We ended up my fourth year being the first team in the history of the school to make the Sweet 16. And we, uh, we had a tremendous year. And so between 1995 and 2009, I'm, yeah, I think we made the tournament every single year except one. Uh, and so, uh, you know, just the recruiting base, I just had some very good kids, some kind of, and, and I, I tried to model a lot after what Gary did um, at UL. Uh, Gary Albertine is my coach there. Uh, model from a standpoint of trying to develop players because uh, one of the things, you know, a lot of the kids in Louisiana were good players but didn't necessarily have as much experience and exposure and opportunity. So I think we had kind of a blue-collar type program where we were trying to outwork teams and, and, you know, change things in players' games and do some things. And, you know, so it was really a fun experience. And so Susanna made the tournament four times. I mean, she and a young lady named Laura Lave won the uh, National Clay Court to rank as highest two in the nation. And I had a young lady named Bruna Colosio who came along a few years later. Uh, she was SEC Player of the Year uh, in 2001 in the NC tournament twice. Uh, and ended up uh, winning the Pan American Games for Brazil. And I was lucky enough to get Megan, who was ranked as high as one in the country. And the thing about Megan that was amazing was her, her sophomore year, she went undefeated in dual matches. It was, it was amazing. Like, just every time she was out there, I mean, she was on like a 30 match win streak until she lost in the semifinals in the tournament. So, and that's just really, and that's just to mention a few, but there are so many that contributed to this program. And, and I think, think that what I was most proud of, I felt like, you know, we did it the right way and did it with class and integrity. And so, uh, so it was, it was a blast. I mean, it's, I think people don't understand coaching is a tough, tough profession because the recruiting just never stops. And the thing that people don't understand too, the SEC is just extremely brutal because uh, we were averaging, there were only 12 teams in the conference at the time, and we were averaging like 10 teams in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I was going to say that. I was going to say probably almost every team makes the NCAA tournament in that conference. Yeah, I mean, so you're kind of, I remember uh, 2000, made the Sweet 16, and we were 3-8 and eight in the conference. And, uh, <laughs> what other 3-8 and eight team in the conference in the history of, of, of college tennis <laughs> makes the NCAA tournament, right? There may, uh, yeah, no one's like, have been a couple of it it was like and I knew we were good because we kept losing like five four five four five four and that would be equivalent to four three now and so the thing that's funny about coaching in general is just getting hot at the right time and right. So we ended up getting really hot at the end of the season and then we ended up uh, going out to uh, the NCAA tournament, upsetting uh, Pepperdine. We were ranked six in the country on the home courts, and uh, and ended up losing to USC in the Sweet 16. But it was it was really, I mean, very special.
still very fun, and uh, it was. Uh, but at the same time, it's a grind, man. It's pretty hard. Hey, and you see it in the SEC and football conference too. I mean, every week is brutal. And when you're going three and eight, yeah, the results aren't there, but you're getting better because you're playing all the best teams in the country. So even though you're losing, like you said at the time, five four, five four, five four, you're getting better while you're you know it's tough, tough losses. But in the long term, it obviously will help your squad, which it did as we saw in the results well, in the NCAA tournament. Good example. I think that particular year. Uh, three and eight, but I think um, like five of the teams were top eleven in the country. Right. So you're, you know, and the thing that in tennis also too, your strength of schedule is the key. And so another thing I tried to do is really schedule uh, good teams on a consistent basis because I wasn't necessarily worried about what your record was because it really didn't matter because I, I was really I was fortunate to sit on the intake committee in 2004, something happened where uh, a flight director at Texas Arlington uh, couldn't be on the committee and I was recommended to get on it. As I sat in there, I saw how the importance of who you play and how important the strength of schedule is. And so the goal was to consistently play teams that can help you because you, you know, I saw teams maybe a 25 record not get in over a team with a 14 and 11 record just because they had played a much tougher schedule. Right. And so that was also, you know, the, the SEC, as tough as it is, you also have a bit of an advantage because you have built into your schedule. You know, now it's 13 matches where you're going to play uh, a lot of the top, top teams in the country. No, it makes makes perfect sense. And obviously you being behind the scenes on that committee, you knew exactly what you needed to do and how you needed to schedule your program. So... Kudos to you. I mean, it was a tremendous career at LSU. Um, I want to kind of move on because after LSU, you have been involved in television. And you had two separate shows, Inside College Tennis and College Sports Weekly. How did you kind of get into all that? And then I know we're going to touch about um, a documentary that you were involved in that a lot of tennis fans know about. It's involving... Tim Siegel and his family, specifically his son Luke. But how'd you kind of get involved in, in the television part of the business? Well, funny story. Right when I finished coaching at LSU, there was a young lady uh, I was whose parents had said, "Hey, um, my daughter's interested in playing uh, college tennis, like D two, D three. She'd take my tennis camps, and she asked." would you work with her? And so I started, I said, happy. And this is the only person I was working with at the time. I, I'm at this remote court, like, in my neighborhood, and I'm, I'm teaching her once or twice a week. And she had a cast in her left wrist. And I said, hey, your parents own a production company. When they come out next time, let's film you hitting backhands and I'm speaking to the camera. And so I'm speaking into the camera saying, hey, this is what you need to do, backhand. And so... Um, so later that night, uh, the young lady, uh, the, the floor owner who owned the production company, along with her husband, Bill, called me and said, we love your ease and presence on TV. You ever thought about hosting a show? <laughs> and I'm like, sure. And so we, I went to their house, and they're like, and I, I said, I don't necessarily want to do anything instructional. What about college tennis? Well, what's funny about that at the time, there was really nothing being done in college tennis, and I called the tennis channel, and I said, hey, we'd like to do this show on college tennis. And, uh, and they're like, it's, you can't do it. The NCAA doesn't allow you to. 
And I was kind of like, that didn't make sense. So I called the Golf Channel, and they were saying, yeah, they do college golf. Well, what it was was you, could, you had to be special rights to televise an NCAA tournament, not just dual matches or anything involved with tennis. So once I called the Golf Channel, and I'm like, oh, if you can do it in golf, you can do it in tennis. Well, we went to Tulane and put together like this three-minute sizzle and said, hey, um, we'd like to, you know, go ahead and, and let you check out our work. And they're like, we love it. Can you have two shows in the next, you know, couple of months? So that's how it got started. And, you know, we ended up doing shows um, at the University of Minnesota, TCU, uh, Southern New Hampshire. We did several shows there. And then later, uh, working with another production company with Harry Chickman, who I still do some work with now, uh, we ended up doing shows at Harvard, at SMU, the National Indoors, and and so it's it's been it's been a blast. And I was sitting there thinking the whole time, man, this is so much easier than coaching. Was <laughs> you know, because I'm like, I'm like, wait a second, you can mess up and do this again. Right. And so, so anyway, uh, it was, it's I mean that's been a total blast, and it's given me a totally different perspective of things being on the outside and it's, it's neat going to see coaches practices and going to see you know kids in a different light and, and those types of things so uh it, it's been a lot of fun and so what we're trying to do now is expand to where we're doing sports outside of just tennis uh because you know i think the quality and, and honestly not me but the quality of the production companies are, these guys are top notch and do a tremendous job. I mean, just the editing and the, they can make the host look really good because, like I said, you know they can you mess up and they have ways of making you seem like you look better than you are and different things like that. So, very blessed and fortunate to you know have worked with a. Uh, with a lot of the professionals I've worked with. No, it's so, so cool and so interesting. And I want to kind of touch upon the Pray for Luke documentary. You can find it on YouTube. Um, you can do a Google search on it and, and see it. Um, for those that don't know, Tim Siegel was a longtime coach at Texas Tech. And his son got involved in, in an accident. It was a golf cart kind of turned over on him. And um, you can kind of do your own research and see what the family's all about and, and Luke's progress through his recovery. And a lot of money has gone into this type of foundation that the family has started. Celebrities have um, gathered around the family and tried to help as much as they can. I knew the story and I had followed stuff on social media. I will say this, Coach, when you shared your documentary and I watched that, I had tears in my eyes. I was, you know, emotional going through it. It was really, really well done. And, and what that family's doing and what the community is doing to rally behind this family is, is really, really special. And I, I urge everyone who listens to this, go check this, um, go check this documentary out. And it's, it's really, really special what this family is doing. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and I've known Tim since I was nine years old, you know, and I always had a lot of respect. He was a great, great player and just a great guy. And uh, when I heard about, you know, everything that happened, and the funny thing was, was we had spoken a handful of times right before this event because I had done a TV show at Texas Tech with Tim the previous year. And 
And so we would stay in touch some. And then when I heard about what happened, uh, I mean, that was about as brutal as you can get with just everything that, that they went through. But I think that, you know, typical Tim, taking a negative and turning it into a positive and using the foundation to help other kids. I, the things that I found out about this, it's incredible uh, how often these anoxic brain injuries happen. And uh, I ended up, I, I haven't shared with you yet, a second show I did with Tim where uh, with the foundation I met other families that have gone through similar things. And it's also neat that, you know, Andre Agassi and Federer yeah. Nadal and Drew Brees and Dick Vitale and all these, I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg of the number of celebrities, Patrick Mahomes, that have gotten behind this and really supported it. And, uh, but it, you know, to be honest, those are the types of, Although the you know the regular shows as far as behind the scenes that the various schools are neat, this is something that I'm more passionate about because it's really you know it's helping helping kids and it's just more meaningful and it's something that in the future I'd love to do a lot more of. For sure, and for those that see you know different um, celebrities may wear the t-shirts or certain teams may wear the t-shirts at time the Team Luke shirts. That's what it's about. It's about the Siegel family and. Um, helping their family deal with a horrible, horrible, horrible circumstance. But as you said, um, the family's turning a, a negative into a positive the best they can. So really, really well done, Coach. Really, really well Thank done. You. Yeah, I appreciate it. So let's kind of talk today. Obviously, you're still busy with TV. Um, I know you're presenting, obviously. I, I met you while you were presenting um, to a number of juniors on mental toughness, uh, along with some various, various other um, facets of the game and helping kids get better at tennis. What's, what's keeping you busy these days, other than those two things that obviously are keeping you very busy? There's, a there's actually a community college here in Baton Rouge that I kind of uh, oversee um, corporate sponsorship and, and you know partnerships in the city. So I kind of I consult and do different things like that. Uh, with Baton Rouge Community College, but um, in the meantime, uh, I've just had you know several people, just you know, various coaching friends of mine that would talk to me about you know. It's funny because it's never about a forehand or a backhand. It's a lot about attitude, and so I just decided, hey, let me see how I could potentially do this as far as uh, mental toughness and, and team building, and so. Over the past, I literally just started this uh, in the past two, three months, and already uh, I've done you know a few colleges and some different juniors, and that's why I was there in Chicago. But I, th I think that, you know, I always ask the exact same question every time I do this. I say, hey, whether I've done basketball, volleyball, softball, tennis, and I'll say, what percentage of uh, basketball is mental, what percentage is physical? And the consistent number I get over and over again is 80% mental. And then I follow up with, well, if it's 80% mental, how much time do you spend working your mental game? And they're all like, uh, none. And so, so basically I just kind of go through some different techniques and show some different uh, successful athletes and, and what it takes to really uh, focus and play at a consistently high level regardless of what the sport you're in and it's a lot of life skills you know overcoming diversity uh, just different attitudes demeanors things of that nature but it's been really fun because the thing that one thing I did when I was a 
at LSU, I would try to bring as many speakers as I could in, and I would say, hey, tell her her toss is off on her serve, and they tell her, and they go, man, I never heard that before. So <laughs> hearing a different voice. That's always, key. I, I always talk about that. Just hear a different voice. It could be the same message, but if you're there a long enough time, sometimes the players just get tired of hearing the same voice over and over. Right, and I think even more, I think even since I've been out, it's changed so much because there's so much to do with, um, you know, social media and texting and all these different facets where keeping a kid focused for a period of time is extremely difficult. And so, um, you know, and, and from a team standpoint, I talk to the teams about, you know, what it takes to play consistently at a high level and really try to emphasize um, doing the best you can you can on a consistent basis and and I know this is it seems crazy but it, it really makes a lot of sense focus on the process not the result as a result you know focus on you know doing what you can and what you can control and so it's a lot of little things like that and so I've you know started over the last two three months and it's been going pretty well and uh, I think just you know being in environment I've been in over the last 30 years. I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of great players, a lot of players with talent that didn't reach their potential, a lot of players that no talent and totally overachieved and it's no coincidence and I think it's a, it's definitely something that you're going to see more and more of when you see the top athletes that have mental coaches and things like that. It's a real eye-opener and, uh, and I think it's something that can be very, very beneficial down the line. Students are lucky to, to have you uh, doing this project and, again, traveling to the various states. They're lucky to, uh, to have someone like you um, present on it. So it's, it's really cool that you're, that you're doing this, you enjoy it, and you're stressing the importance of the mental part of the game. And we know in tennis it's, it's like, like you said, 80% mental pretty much, right? Oh, absolutely. It's a monster, man. It's, it's the mind. It's a... It's, uh, and that's like, you know, you mentioned Megan. Gosh, she's about as tough as they come knowing. I mean, she just knew how to fight every single point. And you get a group of kids in any sport with that same mentality, and uh, you can accomplish a lot of things. So, so cool. Hey, so we're going right at the 30-minute mark. I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you taking the time and doing this, Coach. Um you have a ton of wisdom and knowledge that you openly share with others, and we're thankful for uh, thankful for doing this. I'm really thankful that you agreed to do this tonight. No, thank you, David. I really enjoyed meeting you, and I appreciate the time, and I appreciate the interview. Good luck, and we're going to talk soon. Okay, thank you. All right, David, take care. There you have it. Another uh, episode, Courtside with Bielinson Tennis Podcast with Coach Tony Minnis, Tony's great, great guy, great speaker, and I urge any of you, if you have the opportunity to um, spend some time and listen to Tony present, I highly, highly recommend it. And as always, you can catch these podcasts on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and we'll be having more and more guests. So appreciate you tuning in. Thanks. Thanks.